this podcast and the ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Rosemont, Georgia. For information, visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Let me pray for us, if I could, before we begin. Father, we are humbled by your love and your mercy and your grace, Lord, and we just come to you right now just experiencing your power, Lord, and your mercy. And Lord, we just want to serve you. We want to come before your throne right now and worship. And so, Lord, it's our, it's our heart's prayer right now, God, that as we study, that we would see your word very clearly. And it wouldn't just be words on paper. Lord, it would cause our hearts to be warmed, Lord, and drawn closer to you. And I pray, Lord, that when we leave this place, we would be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus. And so I pray for the next little while, Lord, you would free our minds from distractions, from all the things that will hinder us from focusing on you and help us to see clearly your word. Give me the ability to rightly divide the word of truth, to correctly teach your word so that you may receive honor and glory in all things. And it's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. It's been said that a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And I believe last week as we embarked on a sermon series for the summer that we began that step. I've been praying for a while about this summer and what God would have me to teach on and We started a series last week that will carry us through the summer studying mission work, but more than just carrying us through the summer, I believe it's going to carry our church literally to the ends of the earth. Now, I've called this series Generation 1-8 based on our study last week of Acts 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I'm calling it Generation 1-8 because this is the generation that literally has the opportunity and the ability to reach the world for Christ. No other time in history has a generation had the amount of money, the amount of resources, the amount of technology, all the pieces in place to literally reach the world for Christ. And so we started last week by looking at Acts 1-8 and we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the new witness that that power will bring in our hearts. And we talked about how through that new power and through that new witness, we will go forth into the world and create a new world. A world that seeks God and a world that's shaped by His calling and by His commandment. So we took a look last week at the book of Acts, and we took a look at the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the neat things for me personally as I've been reading through the book of Acts and as I've been studying for this sermon series leading up to this point is as I read through the book of Acts, I'm reminded over and over and over again of the power of the Holy Spirit. If you've never read through the book of Acts, you ought to do it. You ought to spend some time. It won't take you that long. Dedicate one week, maybe 30 minutes a night, and just read through, and then the next night read the next section. Just read through the book of Acts. And when you do it, I want you to do something. I want you to either with your Bible or maybe with a little pad of paper, I want you to mark every time you see the Holy Spirit mentioned. 
either the Holy Spirit or a reference to the Holy Spirit. Maybe you can highlight it in your Bible or maybe put a little tick mark in your notebook. But I want you to notice the number of times that the Holy Spirit is mentioned all through the book of Acts. See, kind of here's the foundation of the book of Acts. Without the Holy Spirit, the early church wouldn't exist. That was God's ordained means to establish the Holy Spirit, to establish the church, was through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, now listen to this, this is important. The Holy Spirit drove the missions movement all through the book of Acts and all through the first century. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit, the missions movement wouldn't exist. The importance we see in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit cannot be missed. But now let's fast forward 2,000 years. Let's fast forward into our churches today and we ask this question. How many of our churches rely today on the power of the Holy Spirit? Or let's phrase it another way that you need to consider. If the Holy Spirit didn't show up, would anybody even notice? Now, A.W. Tozier says it like this. He says, in most Christian churches, the Spirit is quite entirely overlooked. Whether He is present or absent makes no real difference to anyone. So I think it's awfully important as we study the context of the book of Acts and as we think about the power of the Holy Spirit fueling the missions movement of the first century, I think it's important that we have a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit. I think it's important that we study what the Holy Spirit did and begin to embrace the power of the Holy Spirit as we go to the ends of the earth. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, I don't have time this summer to preach through the entire book of Acts. I wish I did. I will, at some point in the future, go back and preach through the whole book verse by verse. I really debated. I just felt led to preach about missions this summer. I really debated how I was going to do this if I needed to, to preach through verse by verse and go well into the fall and probably even next year. But I just felt led to preach some of the important portions of Acts. So last week, Acts 1 8. This week, Acts chapter 2 and the story of. Pentecost. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to begin this morning in Acts chapter 2. And our focus will be verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Now, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they, those are the disciples. Now, let's remember, the disciples were fearful. They were afraid. They were still in hiding. So verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they, those are the disciples, were all together in one place. Now, verse 2. Suddenly, just kind of out of the blue, could you imagine... Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, by the way, this is personal right here. The Holy Spirit filled the group, but it filled them all individually. Verse 3, that's important for you to understand. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit Enabled them. Now, how many times, I wonder, have we read through this passage of Scripture? How many times have we read Acts chapter 2, 1, 2, 3, and 4, and on, and the story of Pentecost and all that God did through it? And how many times have we just kind of blow through and miss maybe what God's teaching here? Now, it'd be very easy for us to read this and just kind of get the gist of the story and the fact that God sent the Holy Spirit to His people. And that's exactly what happened. But I think it's very interesting that Luke gives us some very specific things to look at in these four verses. He could have said very clearly that the Holy Spirit just came on those people and they went out. Or the Holy Spirit just filled these people and they went out. Instead, he gives us three very specific things that we're going to look through this morning. He gives us a sound, 
He gives us a sight and he gives us language of the people, the changing of the languages. And I think it's important as we begin to delve into this passage of Scripture, I think it's important as we try to understand exactly what God was teaching us in this passage on the Pentecost, on Acts chapter 2, to understand these three elements. And so we're going to break it down this morning into three specific areas. And we're going to examine the Old Testament, see if we can figure out exactly what God was saying at the day of Pentecost. So the first thing I want to look at this morning, number one, is the sound of the violent wind. The sound of the violent wind. I put this in parentheses, power and creation. Because I think we can make the point, as I'm going to do here for the next few minutes in the Old Testament, that when the Holy Spirit infiltrated these people's hearts and and came into their, their lives to guide and direct them, the sense of the wind was very important to them. It would have reminded them of all God had done in the Old Testament. Now, the word spirit in the Old Testament carried with it this idea of wind or breath. You see that used oftentimes. In fact, if you were to examine the New Testament, the Greek word for spirit is actually pneuma. Now, the word pneuma literally means wind or breath. So we think about things like pneumatic tools. They're air-powered, right? That's where that word comes from, pneuma. It means wind or breath. Anytime the word spirit is translated in the, Old Te- in the New Testament, that word in the Greek, pneuma, means wind. Now, if we were to back up into the Old Testament, there's some very interesting references that I want to walk through this morning. Now, you don't have to flip through and find them all, but I'd like for you to note them down. Maybe you can go back and read them later. But there's some very specific occasions where God uses wind to show his power and to show his ability to create One of the most interesting examples is 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. This is the story of Elijah. Elijah has gone on top of Mount Carmel. He's battled with the prophets of Baal. You may remember the story. He created the the wood and the altar and the prophets of Baal couldn't do anything with it. Then he has them pour water on the altar and he calls from God above to come down and God sends fire and destroys the altar. You may remember the story. After that, Elijah runs in fear for his life, and he goes and hides in a cave. And we read in 1 Kings 19.11, the Lord said, he's speaking to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now here's how God showed him. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Now, God wasn't in that wind. The Bible's clear there. God came eventually in a small, still voice. But God uses the power of the wind to indicate his work here with Elijah. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, Noah. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. God used a wind to blow across the face of the world to push back the waters and the waters receded after the flood. Exodus chapter 14, verse 21 and 22. The children of Israel have left Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness. They've come to the Red Sea and they can't cross. Here we read in Exodus 14, 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east. You want to guess? Wind, right? We see these instances over and over where this sound of a violent wind is used by God in the Old Testament to demonstrate his power. But let's be a little more specific in the Old Testament. Not only does it demonstrate his power, but oftentimes the wind or the breath or the Spirit of God demonstrates his ability to create 
and bring life. And so we read passages like Ezekiel 37, 5, the story of the dry bones. Ezekiel sees these bones, they're literally skeletons and they're dried up, laying in this valley. And we read in Ezekiel 37, 5, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. Now he's talking to the bones. (laughs) I will make breath, there's that word, breath, enter you and you will come to life. Genesis chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God did what? You remember? Hovered. There's that sense of the wind again. He's kind of hovering over the water. And immediately we read in Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be what? Light. And there was light. God's Spirit, the wind, the breath of God, preceded God's work in creation, preceded in God's work of bringing light where there was spiritual darkness. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Could you imagine that scene? God creates Adam out of the dust. And he holds Adam in the palm of his hands and he literally breathes life into him. Psalm 104.30, the writer here in the book of Psalms is talking about the creatures of the earth. And he says in verse 30, when you send your spirit, there's the same word there. They, these are the creatures, are created and you renew the face of the ground. Now these are just a few examples, but I, I think it's... Kind of clear, maybe it's becoming a little clearer to you, that when we read about the wind of the Spirit, these people at Pentecost would have remembered the power of God demonstrated through the wind and often cases throughout the Old Testament. They would have remembered the the power of God to create. They would have remembered the power of God to bring life. You say, well, that's, that's really incredible. That's a neat study of the Old Testament, right? I mean, so God was at work and he used wind and his Spirit and his breath all through the Old Testament to do really incredible things. But what does that have to do with us now? Here's what it means. See, the Old Testament, excuse me, the Holy Spirit is fully God. And everything that the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament, because he was fully God, he still has the power to do today, right? You understand that. He hasn't changed. It's not as if the power of the Holy Spirit has diminished. So everything we see the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament... Everything we see the Holy Spirit doing at Pentecost, everything we see the Holy Spirit doing in the New Testament, He's still capable of doing today. And so as we think about reaching the world for Christ, we think about the power of the Holy Spirit, the the wind of the Holy Spirit, the breath of the Holy Spirit going before us to create and to change and to bring life where there's death. You see, we get real caught up sometimes in how we're going to be able to do it. We don't necessarily have to. The Holy Spirit's going to do it before us. Literally, sometimes it's just like we show up and the Holy Spirit has already been working in the hearts of these people. He's already been working in their minds. He's already been doing incredible things. So when we show up, they're just ripe. They're just ready. They've already been been changed and molded and shaped by the Holy Spirit. And so we bring the gospel to them and they're ready to accept Christ. One of the things I've been doing for the last several weeks is, is reading a lot about mission work. And I've, I've read some books and a lot of articles. And this week, an article came across my desk. It was in a magazine that I don't usually get. I really don't know how I got it. But I opened it up, and there's a story in there about a missionary woman in Mozambique. 
Now, Mozambique is in Africa. It's obviously a very rural part of the world, but apparently the place where she's serving is even more rural, if you can believe that. She's literally in the middle of nowhere. No water, no electricity. Very, very difficult conditions. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I necessarily agree with everything she's doing because I read the article. And some of the things I wondered about, I was like, you know, God, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's the way you ought to do it or how it ought to be handled. But let me tell you what the article said. The article said that this woman has been in Mozambique for a number of years. And she claims the power of the Holy Spirit working through her to heal people that can't hear so they can hear. To heal people that can't see so they can see. And ultimately, she says, raising people from the dead. Now, here I am in the Western world thinking, okay, right, sure. The story says there are credible reports coming out of Mozambique that says she's doing these things. Okay, so what kind of credible reports are we talking about? Well, apparently, a national medical journal heard about this woman and wanted to see if it was real. And so they sent a team of people down there to investigate. Now, the article referenced this journal and referenced the article, but I didn't, the reference wasn't enough for me. So I actually went to the footnotes. I found the journal. I found the entry of the journal. I went online and found the Log in that journal, I read the whole study. Now, a lot of it's scientific, and honestly, I didn't understand some of it. But I want to quote for you kind of the summary of this article. Here's what these people that went and studied in Mozambique, they would take these people beforehand and they would measure. How's their hearing? How's their sight? Then they would let let them go to this woman. She would pray for them in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then they would measure again. How's their vision? How's their sight? Here's what the article concluded. Here's what the study concluded. Both auditory, that's hearing, and visual improvements were statistically significant across the tested population. And so they're saying, look, we, we tested this guy and his eyesight was terrible. She prayed for healing for him and he came back and he could see. We tested him. This woman couldn't hear. We tested her. She went and this woman prayed for her and now she can hear. Now, I'm not telling you that all this is true. I don't really know. I just read an article on the internet. But here's the question I had to ask myself all week as I read that article. What if God still is in the business of doing this stuff and we're just missing it? What if he really is working all over the world and we're so caught up in our little western self and our little western church that we just miss it? And the wind and the power of the Holy Spirit is violently blowing all over the world to change and recreate and bring life and we're just in our little four walls and we just don't understand it so we just don't think about it. Out of sight, out of mind. I I can't help but ask myself, what's going on here? And then I look over kind of the barren landscape of Christianity in the Western world. And I look over the barren landscape of the lives of so many people that we know. And so many Christians that are listless, right? We're just kind of floating in the ocean of life. And we can't figure out why we're not getting any traction. And we can't figure out why we're not going anywhere. We can't figure out why things aren't changing. I think for so many believers, we need a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit. I think we need to let Him blow through our lives a little bit and begin to shape us and mold us and change us into His will. You say, that's great, Adam. So the, 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 the wind represented this power and it represented this ability to change and this ability to create and to bring life. But how do I know exactly where the Holy Spirit's going? I mean, how am I supposed to discern and know? I mean, wh- what am I supposed to do now? Where is this going to take me? Well, look at verse 3. 
I think the sound of the wind represented the power and the creation. Look at verse 3. When they seemed, excuse me, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. Number one, we looked at the sound. Secondly, I want to look at the sight of the tongues of fire. The sight of the tongues of fire. And in parentheses, you can put guidance. Just as all through the Old Testament, the wind and the breath of God was used to create and bring life, so too was the use of fire all through the Old Testament to guide. And so we begin to read passages of Scripture like Exodus 3.2. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in, you remember, flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn. You remember what happened to that burning bush in the midst of that fire? God gave Moses guidance, didn't he? Moses, here's what you need to do. You need to go into Egypt and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. Fast forward a number of years. Moses has gone in. He's brought the Israelites out. They're in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of, you remember, fire. God says, I'm going to give you this fire. And I'm going to give you guidance. I'm going to teach you the way to go. Fast forward a little bit more. Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And then from the mountain, God gave Moses the direction for the people. You see, all through the Old Testament, fire oftentimes for God represented his power and it represented his guidance. And so we fast forward a little bit into the New Testament, Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Christ begins his ministry, and the Bible says, at once the Spirit led him, that's Jesus, into the desert. Why did Jesus go into the desert? Because the Spirit led him. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. So you do not do what you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There's this clear picture here. We can either be led by the flesh or we can be led by the Spirit. I think the fire, the tongues of fire on these people at Pentecost indicated to them that the Holy Spirit was going to guide them. The Holy Spirit was going to lead them. The Holy Spirit was going to take them to the ends of the earth. Now, Rosemont for a number of years has, has given money for mission work. And I wanted our church to know exactly what that looks like. So you may not have noticed this, but right here in the breezeway, when you leave the sanctuary, right there on the left is our missions wall. Now, we've had a missions wall there for a number of years, and we usually have posters and pictures of mission work. But we took a lot of that down, and instead we replaced it with kind of a graph. Because I wanted you to know how much money our church spent on missions last year. So there's this pie chart, and it indicates, based on the size of the slice of the pie, exactly how much money Rosemont spent last year. If you added up all of our missions giving in 2011, Rosemont Baptist Church gave just over $145,000 to mission work. Now, that's pretty phenomenal. That puts us in the top small percentage of the state of all churches. Very few churches are able to give that kind of money to missions. When you start including what we give to the cooperative program... 
to our Hispanic church, to local missions, to Annie Armstrong, Lottie Moon, Romania. When you start thinking about all the money we give, we gave just over $145,000 to mission. Now, you're probably thinking, as I was thinking, that's a lot of money. Praise God that we've been able to give that kind of money to missions. But here's what I can't get out of my mind. There are literally 1.7 billion people in the world that if something doesn't change very quickly are going to die never hearing the name Jesus. Well, that makes $145,000 look like nothing because it's not enough. $145 million is not enough. It should be to us as believers unacceptable that we're going to allow 100. 1.7 billion people to perish in the world, never hearing the name of Jesus. Now, I don't believe we can see all those people. I'm not saying we can, but we can see some of them. We can't do it all, but we can do something. And here's the question I'm not looking forward to having to answer one of these days. I believe with all my heart, God is going to stand us before the judgment seat, and He's going to say this to us in the Western world. I gave you so much. I gave you so much. So much money, so many resources, so many things, and what'd you do with it? How in the world could you live your life in America like you lived it, never giving anything to reach the world for Christ? How can we live with ourselves when we're letting millions upon millions upon millions of people die? Not because they've rejected the gospel, because they've never heard the gospel. But the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives will give us the guidance and the power to reach those people. I want to give you very quickly four ways that you can allow the Holy Spirit to guide your life. Four very quick areas in your life you can begin to change to allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. Number one, you need to become more aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. How many of us actively try to seek out the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts? We don't, do we? We rarely think about the Holy Spirit much less do we think about the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Have you ever been sitting in a room and you heard a clock ticking? And then from that point forward, you couldn't get it out of your brain. You always heard it. You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like that with the Holy Spirit. When you ignore it and never see it, you're never aware of it. But once you become aware of it, it's hard to miss it because it's all over. The Holy Spirit is at work all over the world. We need to become more aware of His presence in our lives. Secondly, we need to desire to have the Holy Spirit lead us. We need to desire to have the Holy Spirit lead us. I think most people would not admit this, but I think subconsciously most Christians are afraid to actually allow the Holy Spirit to lead them. You say, what do you mean? How is that possible? I'll give you some examples. How about in worship? You may feel like you want to raise your hands or, or men. Maybe you want to sing and you've never sung before. You feel the Holy Spirit leading you to do that, but you're afraid to do it. Why? Because of what somebody may think next to you. You're not being led by the Holy Spirit. You're allowing the fear of men to guide your heart, not the Holy Spirit. Maybe you feel led to witness at work, and you just think God's putting this person in your heart and your mind, but you're just afraid to speak to them. You're afraid of what they may say. You're afraid you can't give the right answer. You're, you're afraid they may make fun of you. You're not being led by the Spirit. Maybe you feel a call to mission work, but you're just afraid. I don't know how I can afford it. I'm scared to fly. I'm not sure how I'm going to work it out with my job. I'm just not sure what I'm going to do. You're not being led by the Spirit. You say, Adam, I, I get all that, right? But that sounds like kind of a hard thing to do. It sounds like a difficult thing to do. It sounds like the Holy Spirit may actually require me to give something up. That doesn't sound easy. You're right. 
But we're not called to an easy life. We're called to serve Christ. Wherever that may lead. We need to pray more for the power of the Holy Spirit. When's the last time you spent real time praying that the Holy Spirit would guide you and lead you and give you the power that you need to accomplish what he's called you to accomplish? Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 15. This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. For this reason, he says, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, Paul, what are you praying? Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the, you want to guess, spirit. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation so that you may know him better. We need to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Fourthly, we need to expect him to do incredible things. We need to expect the Holy Spirit to do incredible things. Things. When's the last time you got in your car on Sunday morning and drove to church and thought, well, I can't wait to see what the Holy Spirit does this morning. I can't wait to see what the Holy Spirit does in that service. I can't wait to see what the Holy Spirit does in my Sunday school class. I can't wait to get to work Sunday morning just to see. I'm expectant that the Holy Spirit is going to do something. We don't live our lives like that, do we? But here's how we live our lives. You go to bed on Saturday night and you set that alarm. You expect it to wake you up, don't you? You wake up on Sunday morning and you're fiddling for the light switch and you hit that light switch, you expect that light to come on, don't you? You get in your car and you put the key in your car and you turn the switch, you expect that car to crank up, don't you? We expect all sorts of things to happen in our lives. Why don't we expect the Holy Spirit to work? Because we've isolated ourselves from Him. We're so busy in the things of our lives and our worlds that we don't even understand the power of the Holy Spirit working. We need to move on this morning, verse 4. We've seen the, si- the sound. We've understood the importance of the sound and the wind and the breath of God. Now we've seen the sight of fire and the guidance that the Holy Spirit provides for us. Now look at verse 4. All of them, and again, this is an individual thing for you. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Here's the third thing I want to look at very quickly this morning. We see the, the different tongues as a call to the nations. Speaking in different tongues, we see very clearly as a call to the nations. Now, I don't have time this morning to delve into speaking in tongues. It's something that most Southern Baptists are afraid of. We've probably never studied it a whole lot. And there are people on all sides of the debate, all different denominations, all different spectrums. There are people down here that believe if you don't speak in tongues regularly, you're not a believer. And there are people down here that believe if you do speak in tongues, it's fake and it can never really be God. And there are people all in the middle. I'm not going to talk about that this morning. That's not my purpose. Here's what I want you to understand very clearly. No matter where you may stand on speaking in tongues, it is in the Bible. (laughs) And we need to be careful sometimes, I think, when we just totally dismiss things because we're not comfortable with it or it's not something we've ever been led to do. It's in the Scripture. And however God may use that today and however He may manifest it in our hearts today, in the second chapter of the book of Acts... In the first century, in the early church, it was used very clearly to bring glory to God. But I think there's some confusion here, so let me just clear this up before we move on. I think a lot of people think about speaking in tongues, and they look at this context of Acts chapter 2, and they think about just gibberish words, right? Words that just don't make sense, just kind of babbling, a bunch of syllables that's put together, and nobody really understands what's being said. Well, in this passage, in this context at least, 
These people weren't babbling in languages that nobody had heard. They were speaking recognizable foreign languages. Verse 7 bears that out. Verse 7 of Acts chapter 2 says, The people were there were utterly amazed. These are the people that witnessed it. And they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So God gave these people in the early church the ability, for whatever reason, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to speak in these tongues of foreign languages. And he did it so that the people around them could hear and understand the language in their own native tongue. You say, well, that's great. What does that have to do with anything? I think this is God's clear call that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can reach the nations. Every tongue and every tribe and every language, right? I mean, God called us in Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth... And then in Acts chapter 2, through the power of the Holy Spirit in speaking in tongues, he says this is the ability, this is the calling, this is the way you're going to do it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can reach the world. We see this is a very individual calling. We see the power of the Holy Spirit coming on each one of these individuals. And so we begin to ask ourselves this question, what's God calling me to do? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, what does God want me to do? Where is he calling me to go? How's the Holy Spirit working in my life? Watch this. Wouldn't it be something if God was calling one of you to be a missionary? What if? What if through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's calling somebody in this room right now, in this congregation right now, to give their life as a full-time missionary somewhere in the world? What if? I've been reading a lot of stories about mission work and a lot of stories about missionaries. I want to close this morning very shortly with a story story of a missionary named David Livingston. David Livingston lived in the 1800s and it was his call to go to Africa and explore Africa and evangelize Africa. David Livingston believed that if he could go to the interior of Africa and he could create passages to the coast, that through those passages, through the other parts of the world, the gospel could come into the central part of Africa and these people could be saved. Now he was warned, David, this is going to be very dangerous. You go into the interior of Africa and there are tribes and people there that are not going to be friendly to you. They're going to try to kill you. It's a very difficult place. Here was David Livingston's quote. If we wait until we run no risk, the gospel will never be introduced into the interior. That's powerful. Man, if you're waiting for no risk in missions, you're going to wait your whole life. And so people cautioned him, come home, David. Terrible things happened to him. He, he went through diseases and sicknesses and he was attacked by a lion and almost ripped his whole arm off. He endured all sorts of hardship. But I want to read from the biography of David Livingston. It says that he sickened at heart when he heard of well-fed Christians at home engaged in hair-splitting discussions over doctrinal themes when millions were dying without the gospel where he was. His brother urged him to come home because of the dangers that he had faced. And he said this, I'm a missionary, heart and soul. God had an only son and he was a missionary and a physician. I am a poor imitation of him or wish to be. But in this service I hope to live and in it I wish to die. Fast forward to May the 1st, 1873, the night of David Livingston's death. I'll read you the biography. By the candle still burning, they saw him, not in bed, but kneeling at the bedside. With his head buried in his hands upon the pillow, the sad yet not unexpected truth soon became evident. 
He had passed away on the furthest of all his journeys and without a single attendant, but he had died in the act of prayer. Prayer offered it that reverent attitude about which he was always so particular, commending his own spirit and all his dear ones that he loved into the hands of his Savior, and commending Africa, his own dear Africa, with all of her woes and sins and wrongs to the avenger of the oppressed and the redeemer of the lost. You know, God has called us to reach the nations. And he's given us the resources and the ability, and the power through the Holy Spirit to do it. I think it's time that this generation shares Christ with all the world. You know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. How far have you walked in the service of your King? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of the gospel, the clarity of the teaching in the book of Acts, Father, as we try to learn as much as we can about the early church and as we see very clearly and evidently the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, working in the lives of believers. Lord, I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. I pray the the power of the Holy Spirit would fall on us, Lord, as it did there at Pentecost, and we would begin to see incredible things We would begin to see incredible miracles and signs and wonders that we can't even understand, Father. And then help us to see that it's the working of the Spirit in our lives, Father. Help us not to discount it or, Lord, to think it's something else going on, but to understand that you're at work and you're doing powerful things through us, Father. Give us the ability and the desire to reach the world for you. And we're going to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the opportunity for a couple minutes to pray. Maybe you want to pray about your mission involvement, about all that God has done in your life. Maybe you want to pray about the power of the Holy Spirit working in your heart and in your mind. Maybe you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you want to join this church. But this is your time right here. Thank you. We invite you to visit our campus at 3794 Hamilton Road in LaGrange, Georgia. Or visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.